before we pray and begin to read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Now listen, there's going to be a lot of context we're going to unpack in Ephesians 1 and 2. We're going to talk about who's writing this letter, who's being written to. We're going to talk a little bit about the city of Ephesus as we are going through God's word together. But before we read and before we pray, there's a couple things I want you to know about this book. First, this book is unique to Paul and the letters that he writes in the New Testament. It's unique in this way. Paul writes most of his letters because he gets word about a glaring issue or problem that needs to be solved and needs to be fixed within the church. Uh, You open up a letter like 1 Corinthians. Uh, It's a list of Paul going, stop suing one another. Don't get drunk off the communion wine. What's wrong with you? A lot of Paul's letters are that way. They're corrective in nature. Uh, Ephesians is unique. Now, he does speak to uh, false teaching and gives some warnings uh, to the Ephesians. Uh, But in nature, this is not a corrective book uh, or a letter that he's writing. Instead, it's an instructive. Paul's aim is to grow the men and women who call themselves Christians uh, in the church at Ephesus, to grow them into maturity, to grow them into strong, mighty men and women of God. Now, how many of you, your aim is to grow up and become mature in Christ Jesus? Me, yes, please. Uh, This book is going to be good for you. It's an encouraging book that just is going to grow us. Now, that's how it's unique. Here's how it's just like all the rest of Paul's letters that he writes to individuals or to churches. Paul follows the exact same formula in almost every one of his writings. He always starts with God first before he moves into any kind of practical teaching or any kind of commands for New Testament believers to do this or not do this. Paul never starts with us because how many of you know you can't put the cart before the horse? Gospel transformation and maturity. What makes us want to obey God, want to serve him, comes from a proper understanding and knowledge first of what God has done for us. Amen? Religion is us trying to be good people uh, to, to make God happy. Christianity is us loving Jesus freely and honestly because we understand what he has done for us. And so this is how we see Paul write in Ephesus to to this church. We see the first three chapters are chocked full of heavy lifting, theological, uh, gospel-saturated understanding. Uh, What I'm trying to tell you, and then the last three verses, four, five, and six, are practical life application verses for Christian men and women. Here's what I want to say to you these next several weeks as we're in chapters one, two, and three. You're going to, this is some difficult, so we're going to get through the first 14 verses today, I hope. We have to. But we need to put our thinking caps on. Amen? We want to love God with our minds. Amen? What my experience 
in pastoring this church for more than a decade now is when people come to me and they've got that, that deep-rooted sin and they hate it and they don't want it there, but it's recurring in their lives and they just can't seem to shake it. Almost every time the, these sins that we can't seem to, to shake off are results of our lack of understanding about who God is and what God has done. So as we move through these first three verses, there is some real freedom. And listen, we, we live in a country uh, where we, we're good at loving God with our hearts. And that's part of it, right? God made it. He's an emotive God. He uh, gets angry, right? He gets grieved. Uh, Zephaniah says he, he loves us and sings, rejoices over us and sings over us. Right, We have an emotive God. He has emotion. He created us in his image and likeness. We have emotions too, and emotions are not bad. But emotions can't be everything. Emotions need to be paired with knowledge. We should love God with all of our hearts. We should also love God with all of our minds. So I'm calling you, and we're going to pray that God will help us love him well with our minds as we go through the first couple chapters in Ephesus, because I promise you, if we love God with our minds, loving him with our strength, in chapters 4, 5, and 6 is going to come. It's going to translate from our head to our heart and then to our hands uh, if we get this first part right. So, also, really quick, something I want you to be noticing. I feel like we're already started. We haven't. But something I want you to notice throughout the rest of Ephesians, you're going to see two little words over and over and over again from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 6. And those two words are in Christ. Everything we're going to read about, about who God is and what God has done, is saturated with these two words in Christ. There is no, there's a reason we call it Christianity, right? Because everything centers and is purposed in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the Father's will, but he willed and works out his will in Christ, the second person of the triune Godhead, uh, the, the one who became flesh and dwelt among us to show us the face of God and what God was like and what it looked like to honor God in human flesh. Everything God's done is in Christ, and everything we do also is saturated with these two words. Words in Christ. So the theme, if you will, of growing and becoming spiritually mature, men and women, is grounded and saturated in Christ. Let's pray and we'll get started. Father, I love you this morning. I thank you for every man, for every woman, for every boy, for every girl that is here in this room this morning. Father, we partake in the heavy task of opening your word to learn what you say, to learn who you are, to learn what you have done. Father, may none of your words fall short upon us this morning. Holy Spirit, help us, teach us, grow us in our faith, in our belief, in our understanding of, of God and his will and his gospel. Jesus, and I pray as we are learning these things, as Jesus dying on the cross becomes more profound and, and is opened up before us, Father, may we grow 
and maturity that we need so desperately. Make us men and women of God in Jesus Christ. And everybody said, oh, amen. And be with Cartersville this morning. Amen. All right, here we go. You ready? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. I'm giddy. I'm excited. It's the second Sunday I've used the word giddy. Somebody remind me not to say that word anymore. Verse 1. Paul. Let's stop there. <laughs> now we're... We're not, I'm not going to belabor this, I promise, because we've studied a lot. In fact, the only two books that we've not gone through that Paul has written in the New Testament over the past 10 years is Philippians and Romans. Philippians we're going to do end of summer this year. Romans we're beginning next year. All right, so we, we've heard most of us in the room uh, have been Christians for more than a couple days. We know who the Apostle Paul is. Uh, but just in case there is someone in here, you, you have no idea who this guy is. Let me give you a brief recap. Uh, Paul begins as Saul of Tarsus in the New Testament. Uh, he is an incredibly educated man. He is trained by the greatest of all rabbis uh, in Jerusalem, Gamaliel. He is the who's who up and coming of the Pharisee party uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, he is, uh, you know, in today's standards, he's uh, in today's standards, he would have a double PhD degree. That's how learned uh, Saul of Tarsus was. And just, right, because we love the stories about Peter and James and John and these uneducated fishermen who God uh, seems to use uh, and, uh, and God does use. And we all can go, woo, God can use somebody like me. But God also handpicked Saul of Tarsus one of the most educated men in that society, and used him as a mighty battle axe in his hands. Saul traveled more, preached the gospel more, planted more churches than any of the other disciples from the New Testament accounts. So, but before, let's get to his salvation. He's, he's this educated man, and he sees Christianity that is growing as a threat to Judaism. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. According to the law, he considers himself to be a blameless adherent uh, to Moses' uh, Old Testament law that was given by God through Moses to God's people. He wants to defend Judaism. He wants to defend the Torah and uh, the traditions of the elders and Christianity is a threat. So the first place we see him in the book of Acts, he is, and again, he's a Pharisee, so he's not going to do any of the dirty work himself. But he is holding the coats of others as they stone the first Christian martyr, Stephen, in the book of Acts. That's who Saul was. Saul wanted to hurt the church. Saul wanted to kill and imprison Christians. In Acts 9, we read about his salvation experience. He's on his way to Damascus. He has letters and a small uh, band of soldiers with him so that when he gets there, he can imprison the Christians who are worshiping in the name of Jesus. But on the way, something happens. Jesus Christ, who had been murdered on the cross and been buried, but his body's not there. People are saying he's risen from the dead. 
Well, Saul gets a firsthand experience with this resurrected Jesus who is very much alive in Acts chapter 9. And uh, at the sight of Jesus and, and through the words of Jesus, Saul is knocked off of his horse onto the ground and he is blinded uh, at the sight of Christ. And Jesus says something to him. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul wasn't persecuting Jesus. He was on his way to persecute Christians. What's important for us to understand is in persecuting Christians, you're persecuting Christ. Jesus takes his people very seriously. So he blinds Saul and tells him uh, to go into the city and he would send someone. And Ananias is another man whom God said, hey, I need you to go and pray for Saul. I'm going to use this guy in a mighty way. Man, is he going to suffer much for my kingdom and for my gospel. And Ananias says to God, no, thank you. I've heard about that guy. He kills guys like me. And God said, he's mine, I'm telling you, go and pray over him. And so Ananias goes uh, to Saul and prays for him and something like scales fall off of his eyes. And Saul is a changed man from this encounter with Jesus Christ. The change is so great. Uh, he even goes by a different name uh, from that moment on. And that name is Paul. He becomes this great apostle to the Gentile peoples. Now remember, he was a leader and one of the most educated Jews trying to preserve Judaism. But God changes his life through meeting Jesus. And now he becomes becomes this outspoken evangelist to people who are not Jews, grafting them into the New Testament church through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is uh, Paul's life. We know of three missionary journeys that he took, proclaiming the gospel and planting churches all over the Roman world. This is Paul, an apostle. Paul becomes, a, a lot of people ask the question, how come they were disciples and then Jesus resurrected and they became apostles all of a sudden? What, what, what change occurred? Look, I don't want you to get too crazy about the word apostle because there are no more apostles like there were in Jesus' day. The Bible does talk about an apostolic gift. That's like what happened with me when Jesus, uh, I felt called to plant a church here in Akron. That's an apostolic uh, call. There's no Bible verse that says Brent Stevens needs to plant a church in Akron. I just felt sent. And that's what the word apostle means. It just means ones who are sent. Now the 12 and Paul in uh, the New Testament, I didn't mean to get in a small lecture on apostleship, but we're here, so let's go. These men were eyewitnesses. We call them capital A apostles. And the reason we do that is because they were eyewitnesses. They all saw Jesus in his resurrection power and glory. And they recorded and wrote down the things that they saw. Those recordings are this book we call the New Testament. The last 27 uh, books in your uh, Bible, 66 books in total. Right, they're capital A apostles. Nobody liked those guys anymore because why? They were eyewitnesses. So if you ever open up a Charisma magazine and you're looking at all the church conferences by Apostle Bishop so-and-so and Apostle this and that, just know they're not like the guys in the Bible. 
They may feel called to a certain place to preach the gospel and plant a church, but that would be the extent of apostleship in our day and in our age. Amen or oh me, either one. I said it and there it is. Paul, an apostle of, he's not just a sent man of his own doing. He's sent on mission and on purpose by someone. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul knows he's not going anywhere with his own message that he made up. Paul didn't have a great idea in the shower. Right? He's, he wasn't one of those guys that had a little notepad by his bed. And at 3 a.m. when he has that dream about the secrets of life, he scribbles it quickly before he forgets it. Right? This isn't Paul's story. This isn't Paul's mission. This isn't Paul's gospel. Paul is a man clearly on a different trajectory in life than the one that God had for him. This is most of our stories, amen? We're going one way and God just says, nope, you belong to me. We're going to see that play out a little later in chapter 1. But Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus. This is Christ's message. This is Christ's mission. And it's all by the will of God. And one thing you're going to see in these next several verses, you're going to see uh, God's triune self. You're going to see the will of God the Father. You're going to see uh, in Christ Jesus and through Christ Jesus, the second member of the Trinity. You're going to see the, the Holy Spirit's work. Even in the end of this sermon, if we can get down to the ceiling of the Holy Spirit, you're going to see God uh, in, his, in his perfect community of his triune self. Remember, uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, the Lord our God is one. We have one God, but he reveals himself in three distinct persons. And it's important that you don't fall into uh, heresy like modalism. Uh, God is not a person who's wearing a different mask as Jesus sometimes, and then he wears another mask as Holy Spirit. Uh, that, that, that's an incorrect view of the Trinity. We have to live with uh, uh, humility when we study the Trinity because he's one God. You have to say he's one. We're monotheistic, not polytheistic. At the same time, he reveals himself in three distinct persons. And I say don't be confused by that, but good luck because humanity's been confused by it. Christianity's been confused by it for a while. Paul, I said there, there are things, if we could figure God out, he wouldn't be God, Amen. Paul, an apostle of Christ, he's by the will of God to the saints. I'm going to have to start speeding up here. We're not going to get through this, but, but this is an important word. This is a word used in the Old Testament for angels. And it's also a word used uh, at times to refer to the people of God. Saints means set apart ones or holy ones. This is the first place in the New Testament where this word refers to a people who are not uh, simply and only Jewish by birth. The church in Ephesus we're going to see is, is full. It's got Jewish converts from Judaism to Christians uh, within the church, but it's also got a lot of Gentiles, Greeks and Romans that all make up this church together. And this is the first time where, and this is intentional, Paul refers to them as saints, meaning 
just like the, the angels of the Old Testament, just like a, a Israel in the Old Testament. It is now you. It is now the church made up of different tribes and different peoples and different tongues. But you are all saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Before we talk about Ephesus, let's just feel that word. God calls his people saints. If you're in this room and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are something. And yes, we're sinners, right? We still are in flesh. Sometimes we still fall uh, to our fleshly desires. But even in our failures, we are right now in Christ, his holy ones, his set apart ones. We are different from everyone else in that our desires because of the Holy Spirit's work in us is to honor God, worship God. I mean, think about it. What are we doing in 2020 gathered together to sing songs when nobody on the stage is famous, right? We go to concerts and that's normal, but we don't come to do the singing ourselves, right? We're different than everyone else. God has done something in us. He's changed us. He's trans. He's made us something that we weren't before. You in this room right now feel, uh, feel the, 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 the glory of the Lord and the acceptance of the Lord upon you. As he doesn't call you what you were, wretched, he calls you what you've now become in Christ Jesus, saints. To the saints who are in Ephesus, now quickly, we've got to unpack this city just a bit. Paul is writing to a church that is centered in, and of course the church of Ephesus is actually made up of many churches because Ephesus was a big place and there were a lot of pockets of Christians that were gathering and meeting. So this was a circular letter meant for all the churches within uh, Ephesus. And Ephesus was a big city. You got 20 miles in any direction from the city center. The, the, it was just spread out people everywhere. It's one of the fourth or fifth largest cities in the ancient world. It was called the mother city of Asia. It was the seat of Roman power uh, in the east. Uh, the Roman proconsul uh, met there. Great men like Mark Anthony sailed from the harbors of uh, Ephesus. This was a city where you got 200, 250,000 people living in this harbor town. All the trade is there. The economy is strong. People knew if you want to have a chance, you move to a city like Ephesus. And that's why it was this sprawling metropolis. It was multi-ethnic. Oh, there's a lot going on in Ephesus. But not only was it a great city for business and for economics, but it was a religious and a spiritual city. It boasted over 50 temples to Roman and Greek gods and even emperor worship. They had uh, the honor of having a temple to Julius Caesar uh, within the city of Ephesus. There were all kinds of people practicing magic. If you go to Acts 19 where Paul uh, goes there, Paul spent three years in Ephesus training and raising up leaders in the church. Uh, he meets with the elders of the church in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, giving them instruction uh, and what's going to come next for them as he moves on to another city to proclaim the gospel. 
The Bible says when Paul began to preach there, right, one of the temples is the temple to Diana or Artemis. Greek is the Artem- Artemis is the Greek name. Diana is the uh, Roman name. She was a goddess of fertility, and she was the patron goddess of the city of Ephesus. Now listen, her temple in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. How many of you have been to Nashville and you've seen the Parthenon? Right, the replica of the Parthenon. Sam, all right, Sam's with me. Go to Nashville, it's a cool city. Um, The temple of Diana, four times larger than the Parthenon. Just, I mean, you know how when you go to the Grand Canyon or, or to some mountain range and you just feel so small? In the city of Ephesus, when you stood before the temple of Diana, you just felt small. The pillars are 60 feet high. This thing is monolithic. That was the patron goddess. And there were a lot of people who made a lot of money selling little silver trinkets and things of Diana so you could take Diana home and and worship her from your home and not just at the temple. Paul comes preaching in Ephesus and a riot breaks out. You know you're preaching the gospel, right? When a riot breaks out in a city. Because the silversmiths are mad because they're losing business. Nobody's buying their their trinkets of Diana anymore. And they stand up and they get the crowd all worked up. And and one man named Demetrius says, these men are saying gods made by hands aren't real gods. (laughs) To which we would say, duh. Right, but this riot breaks out. It's crazy what's going on uh, in this city of Ephesus. And Paul preaches the gospel and people get saved and they burn. The Bible says they burn their magic books. Huge bonfire once they turn to Jesus. In today's wealth, over $6 million of magic books were burned on that day in Acts chapter 19. This was a spiritual city. They were into astrology. They were into the horoscopes. And if your horoscope looked bad, you'd have to go get a magic spell from someone and and drink it or perform some uh, magical incantation to change your fate, to change your destiny and your future. That's what these people were used to in this city. And the gospel changed all the superstition. And the gospel changed everything in these people's lives. We're going to find out why. We've got to hurry. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is a typical greeting found in almost identical in seven other letters that Paul writes. Paul loves this language and language is important. And Paul uses it uh, uh, for this purpose of encouraging the churches. Grace to you, he says. What is grace? God's unmerited faith. How can we be called saints? I was saying that a second ago, and some of you were like, yeah, no, you don't know who I am, Brent. How can God call us? We're not a perfect people. We're not without blemish. Only Jesus Christ was. How can we be called saints? Grace to you. God gives us what we don't deserve. Not to be confused with mercy, which is when God doesn't give us what we do deserve. What do we deserve? We deserve death and hell. We deserve separation from God because we chose sin over him. But God doesn't give us what we do deserve in death and hell. That's mercy. 
And instead, he gives us grace, what we don't deserve. All the rights, privileges, and pleasures of being his son, his daughter, part of his family. He gives us what we don't deserve. He calls us saints. And he does so rightly because, as we're going to learn in a moment, he redeems us. He paid for our sin. Grace to you. Listen to me. It's been a bad week. It's been a bad year. Grace to you, saints of God. He gives us what we don't deserve. Grace to you and peace from God. Since Adam and Eve's fall in the garden, there has been tension and warfare between God and mankind. But because of God's grace poured out upon us, the tension is removed. There is no more enmity. There is no more war between us and God. Instead, peace has been made. I can't wait to preach that sermon in chapter 2. There's no more dividing wall of hostility between God and us. Because of his grace, we have peace with God. You don't have to wonder at night laying your head on your pillow whether he's going to give it to you or hell is your home or are you too bad for him. There is now grace and peace in Christ Jesus between the believer and God their creator. And that is good News And some of you are asking, well, how does that even work? That doesn't seem right. Welcome to the next 11 verses. Let's move. Blessed. Now, this word blessed, it doesn't mean we think of blessed as you somebody giving you a gold crown and dumping a bunch of material stuff, wealth on you. All right. That there can be some uh, understanding of a physical, uh, you know, your needs being met. However, this word in its etymology, if you go all the way back to when it was first used, the word means to speak well of someone. So I want you to think of it that way as we read this. Blessed be the God, we speak well of God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, right? We speak well of him because he's spoken well of us. He just called us saints, right? And we're not, but that's something that he's done by his grace. He's brought peace where there was no peace. And we speak well of him because he's done this for us. He's spoken well of us. Now, let me just quickly, we need to understand this concept of God as father, Jesus is our Lord and Savior. He's God who became flesh and dwelt among us. But who we have, we've seen the face of God the Father in the face of Jesus Christ. But God the Father is hidden from us. All we know of him is what we've seen in Christ Jesus. The important point to remember here, there's two actually. Number one, you can call God your, if you're a Christian, God is your father. He's the one who is, right, what what are the, now listen, some people didn't have good fathers, so that's hard for you to wrestle with. But if you're a father like the Bible wants you to be a father, you're protecting, you're providing for, you've got a plan and, and a purpose and a will for your family and for your children. 
The same way that God has a will and a purpose and a plan for you, his sons, and for you, his daughters. He is your father. I want you to notice the Bible never calls him mother. I don't know if you remember, it's been about a decade ago, but there was a group of of ladies who came together and said, we're going to redefine God. We are going to... We are going to call him mother, and we're going to change his name to Sophia, which means wisdom. So we're going to worship from now on. The God of the Bible is going to be Holy Mother Sophia, and that's how we're going to worship God. Here's why you can't do that. You're making up a new religion in doing that. It's not Christianity, because God doesn't reveal himself as Sophia. Now listen to me. Is God a man or a woman? No. He's neither male nor female, is he? He's spirit. But he reveals himself to us as father. So what do Christians do? We honor and respect how he reveals himself to us. We worship him as he reveals himself. We honor him as he reveals himself. And he calls himself father. So we pray, God, our father, thank you for Jesus Christ, and for saving us. I've only got, man, that thing went from 20 minutes to 12 minutes so quickly. (laughs) Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, he's spoken well of us, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing. Now you might say, I don't feel that blessed. I want you to look where the place of spiritual blessings is. It's in heavenly places. I want you to understand that because we're going to see that again by the end of this chapter. And there are things stored up. There is an inheritance stored up for you and I that is going to blow your mind. And it's not some stupid kind of winning the lottery and having 300 billion. It's It's not something superficial and shallow like that. But there are real spiritual realities that that are stored up for us. That when we get there, all the pain and the heartache of this world is going to become worth it. As we understand what he wanted us to know so that we could experience these spiritual blessings that he has stored up for us. Like any good father would do for their children. Or what does a father do? A father, if he's good, sends his kid to school. Right? And that's what the law was in the old. It was a schoolmaster for God's Old Testament people. It's why we still live in this sinful world for these moments where things sometimes don't make sense because there's so much hurt and there's so much arctic. We're in school right now. But eventually there's going to be a graduation. And at a graduation, daddy pulls back the curtain and woo, there's the shiny new car. Yay! That was a dumb illustration, but. All right? There are blessings stored up for us. Some that we, we, we can't fathom or even understand because of how well he's spoken of us. Even as he chose us. Now, underline that. Christianity is a funny thing. Right? You hear this gospel call. It's like you're walking in a room and you come to a door and on the door it says everybody's welcome, come all ye who want to enter, open this door and walk through. 
And so we do. We walk through and we walk through the door and we shut it. And on the back of the door, it says, I chose you. You didn't choose me. This is a reality within Christianity that to become mature, you need to understand. Because like many, when, we, when we're young and we have all this zeal for God, we do a lot of stuff and we're out shooting our guns and right, we're, we're doing a lot for Jesus. And sometimes we think it's about us. Sometimes we think it's about what we do. But there is a humility that every Christian man and every Christian woman needs to understand in this room. This is not about you. This is about God. And it's not you who's doing all the work and doing all the transformation. It is God who is at work in you. That's why John says it so clearly. You didn't choose me. I chose you. Now think about that for a moment. You're a Christian in this room. It is through the divine, sovereign will of God. He handpicked you. Amen. And some people, they want to go to the negative side of that immediately. Right? Every battery has a positive and a negative side. You know that? And some people start going, well, that's not fair. Why didn't God choose the Philistines? I don't know. And that's not the point of God's purpose and his election. The point is to give you confidence that you can never truly have in and of your own strength. Because if it's about you, then you can lose it just as quick as you gained it. But this is about God. This is about what he's done. And if he's done it, neither hell nor high water. That's why Jesus can say, no one will take them from my hands because God has put them there. There is confidence that you need in your walk with Christ. And it can only come from your understanding of his choice and his sovereignty over your life. When he's in charge... Man, you can have the worst day ever and still have confidence that he's your God and his grace is to you and there is peace between you and him. It's the only way this works. <sighs> Even as he chose us in him. Now, this is all past tense. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. When did this occur? Before you were born. I just got a Toad the Wet Sprocket song in my head. Before you were born, someone kicked in the... Ah! Before creation, before he spoke light, before he began to set up creation and this world. Some of you might be wanting to say, because we're going to fix and talk about this predestined. Let me just read it. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. There's that word predestined. Before anything. Some of you may have heard, God predestined means he looks out into time and he sees who all the good people are. And he says, I want them on my team. My team won't be right if I just don't get these great, great, great people. They're going to do so much good. 
And they said that's predestined him looking down to see who would be good enough and then handpicking them to be on his team. That's works-based salvation. That's heresy. That is not what God has done before you were born, before anything was done right or wrong. Some people say, well, Brent, don't everybody have a, doesn't everybody have a choice? Everybody has a choice. Let me encourage you. Everybody's got a choice. Now let me discourage you. Everybody chooses wrong. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each and every one of us have turned to do our own thing. So yeah, we all get a choice, but we all choose wrong. And what does God do before? Right? He, he looks down to the corridors of and sees that everybody is wicked. So what does he do? He predestines. He predetermines a destiny for his people. That's what the word predestination means. This is, if you're a Christian in the room, this is what God has done for you. Before the foundations of the world, he chose you. And he, because what does a good father do? He chose you. And then he predetermined a destiny for you. And what was that predetermined destiny? To be adopted into his family. You were an alien. You were a foreigner. You were on the other side of the fence. And God comes along, the king riding his horse, and he looks down at the poor and the dirty and the fatherless, and he doesn't say, I'm going to leave you there. Stay on the other side of the fence. I'm going to put up signs and say, don't climb this fence. It's not what he does. Instead, the king gets off his horse, and he takes the poor wretch of a person who has no hope and can do nothing. I don't know if you know this, but the orphans don't adopt parents. It's the parents who adopt orphans. And that's what he does. We were orphans with no hope. But he chose us and he determined the destiny for us. And then he grabs us and he makes us his sons and his daughters. Every right, privilege, and pleasure of being a son or daughter of God belongs to us, the saints who have been given grace and peace has been made between God and us. He's not just king to us any longer. He's king, but he's also father. That's why we can cry out, Abba, Father. That's an Aramaic term. It's, it's, a, it's an endear, a term of endearment. It's like saying, Daddy. There is a connection and a closeness we have with God because he made that connection possible because we should never have had the opportunity for that connection in the first place. You guys having fun so far? Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The beloved is a name for the church, God's people, God's family. In the back of your book, you're going to see a paper I wrote uh, when I took Ephesians in seminary. And it was tracing the, mo the family motif throughout the book of Ephesians. That's who we are. We're the beloved. We're, his, we're, not, we're the gathered people of God, but we're... We're, his, we're the ones he loves, his sons, his daughters. We're his family. It's what the church is. I don't do the church. Again, all our problems come from a lack of knowledge. If you have a low view of the church, you've not read your Bible well. Because the church is the beloved of God. Who doesn't want to be part of the beloved of God? 
in him we have. Now watch this. All that was past tense. He chose us. He predestined us. He adopted us. That was all past tense before the foundations of the world were even laid. Now we're getting into present tense. Because God has done these things, we now have. Saints of God, sons and daughters of God, we have. What do we have, Brent? Redemption. Redemption. We had placed ourselves, no fault of God, we placed ourselves in bondage to slavery. Slavery to what, Brent? The Egyptians? No, something much worse than a people group. Slavery to sin itself. It was our master. And there was no way we could be freed. But God comes along in Christ Jesus. Let me read. In him we have redemption. How? Through his blood. Talking about Christ on the cross. What did Jesus do? God before the foundation. We were all wretched. We were all sinners. We were all doing our own thing. We were all slaves to sin. And we could never get to God. So God wills a plan to save his people from their sin. And that plan, he can't just sweep sin under the rug. He has to solve the problem. He has to satisfy the offense that sin is against his holy nature and being. He can't sweep it under the rug. He can't just willy-nilly say, ah, it's not important to me anymore. He's holy and righteous and perfect. Sin is an offense. The offense has to be satisfied. So what does he do? In his triune Godhead, his, his, his community that he's always been involved, he's three yet he's one. He says to the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, I'm going to send you. And you're going to go and you're going to live like them. You're going to wrap your deity in flesh and you're going to live among them. But you're going to do what none of them has ever been able to do. You're going to perfectly satisfy every righteous requirement that my holiness demands. And this is why Jesus, as our example of what a human being should look like, everywhere in the Gospels you see Jesus going, I only go where the Father tells me to go. I only say what the Father tells me to say. I only do what the Father tells me to do. Why does Jesus speak? I mean, Jesus is God too. Why does he speak like that? To show us what it looks like to live in perfection. To show us what it looks like to live as God wanted uh, humans to live. Jesus perfectly satisfies every righteous requirement uh, demanded by the righteousness and holiness of God himself. His being, this is ontological. His being demands perfection. Jesus came and he was perfect where none of us were perfect. Which is why he could be our kinsman redeemer. Right? He could step into our place and vouch for us and exchange his perfection for our sin. The entire weight of sin came upon Jesus Christ and he was crushed. This is why he cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever wondered why he said that? Because he was crushed under the weight of sin and felt the separation from his father that he had always known. For us, what we deserved, he took it upon himself. The weight of sin, the wrath of God. The Bible says it pleased God to pour his wrath upon his son. Why would it please God? Because it is in that wrath being poured out that the, uh, the sin has been, uh, the payment for sin has been satisfied. 
The offense has been uh, alleviated. And now the peace can be between his chosen adopted sons and daughters and himself. We've been redeemed. He created us and then he, this is my life, Brent. I've been, not if you're a Christian. You've been bought with a price. You've been redeemed. You're, you no longer belong to yourself. You belong to him. And he's a good God who calls you son, who calls you daughter, who calls you saints. We have, Brent, I'm struggling. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Listen, according to, God is not like Rockefeller walking around giving a dime to a poor person. Right, Rockefeller had a lot of money. Dime was nothing to him. He was giving uh, uh, from his riches. God gives according to his riches. That's a different thing. All he has, he gives to us. All he has. All he has becomes ours in Christ Jesus. You can study grace for two decades and never exhaust the wonder of how much God has done for us. He's a good God. <laughs> We're late. Which he lavished upon us. He doesn't just pour out a little. He lavishes us. It's like taking your dog and put him in the bathtub. You don't just pour some soap on his back and rinse him off. No, the dog stinks. So you get it in there and there's suds everywhere and he's flipping and stuff's going. Right? He lavishes upon us his grace. This is what God has done for you. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purchase, which he set forth in Christ. God, why do we have the Bible? Because God wants us to know how much he loves us, what he's done for us. He chose us. He predetermined a destiny for us. He adopts us as his sons and daughters. He redeems us from our sin. He forgives us of our sin. He lavishes us uh, with all the grace, everything that we don't deserve, all that he has, he gives to us, and he wants us to know. Agnostics are right in this. We can't know God. We can see the invisible attributes of God in nature and man is without excuse, but we can't know him intimately and personally unless he reveals himself. If he reveals himself, then we can know him. God has revealed himself. He wants us to know him and what he has done. Ah, the gospel is not intrinsic. No one's going to sit under a tree and come up with the conclusion that God became flesh and dwelt among us. His name was Jesus. He lived the perfect life I had and died in my place for my sins. And then on the third day, he rose conquering sin, death, hell, and the grave. Which, by the way, when you fill out your membership application, that's what we want to hear under the gospel question. Do not say the Bible. The Bible is not the gospel. It just contains the gospel so that we can know what I just said. I love you. This is all part of growing, right? We got to grow. Oh, I've got to hurry. You know, those miserable. 
as a plan, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. There is a uniting that's already occurring in the church. We're going to unpack that in the next several weeks. But there is also those heavenly places full of spiritual blessings that we are going to be united with at the right time, just like we were united with Christ at the right time. And now we have the redemption and the grace that we need to make it to that time. Verse 11, quickly. In him we, and I underline we, because he's talking about himself and a certain group of people. He's a Jew, right? He says, we, having obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Listen, there is nothing on this earth right now that takes God by surprise. He raises up nations. He brings nations low. Nothing is surprised. Everything is working out according to the will of God. We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works. Verse 12, so that we who were the first. Who's he talking about? Old Testament Israel was God's people. They were the first to experience revelation and the mystery of God's will. They were the first to obtain an inheritance. And he's not just talking about Canaan. He's talking about the full inheritance of God, all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. It was the Jewish people who first obtained those things. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him you. He changes from the we's to the you. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. The we becomes you, and then it becomes our. How did that happen? In Christ, through the gospel of your salvation who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, we're eight minutes past. Let me wrap this up and we'll pray. Right? God had always had a people in Israel. When Christ came, we learned that all Israel wasn't spiritual Israel. Right, Because some of them rejected Jesus. In fact, some of them killed their own Messiah that was sent to them. Just like Isaiah the prophet said that Jesus would be the suffering servant. But there are a lot of Jews who did believe. And Paul was one of those, those first Christians. Right? He saw resurrected Jesus in power and glory. And he was saying, hey, we were the first. Right, The church in Acts chapter 2 is all Jews. Right? There were Jews from a lot of different places. That's why you see Hellenism there. There were Jews who spoke the, the Greek language, but it was a Jewish church led by Jewish men. That's why Paul says we were the first in Christ to obtain this inheritance, but now you also have received the gospel. He's talking to the Gentiles in Ephesus, people who needed magic spells uh, to deal with life. He says, but you also have believed the gospel, and you've received all this grace, you've received this salvation. So now, together, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? If you're in this room, a seal in the ancient world meant a mark of ownership. You can know that you know 
that you know that you are a Christian. Some of our young guys, they struggle with, with unbelief and, and with recurring sins. They're like, oh, did I lose? Am, am I still a Christian? Listen, if you believe and confess that Jesus Christ, they're, 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 the reason there's no enmity between you and God is because of Jesus because he lived a perfect life that you haven't, because he died in your place for your, because he redeems you, and his grace is lavished upon you. If you believe that and you confess that, there is a mark of ownership that God has placed upon you that no man can scratch away. We can know that we know that we know we belong to him. How? In Christ. It's my question for you this morning. Are, and this is just the beginning. <laughs> Are you in Christ? Do you know how good he has been? This morning, for the first time, you've heard the gospel in a way where you would say, I didn't understand. I didn't realize. I just thought Jesus died on the cross. I'd heard that a thousand times. I didn't know what it meant. Listen, trust in Jesus. Be saved. Take your place as the son or daughter. He has already made you have the confidence in your life, the twisted, broken, screwed up life that we're living in this broken, screwed up world. Have confidence through Jesus that the wall of hostility has been broken down and things between you and God are right. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, I thank you that we follow it closely. Help us continue and help us grow in our understanding of what you have done. Father, the grace you've lavished upon us. Oh God, help us to see more clearly than we've ever seen. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. And everybody said, amen. amen.